Welcome to Brand Growth Heroes, the podcast that explores how insurgent brands in consumer goods categories are driving transformational growth. Here our guests talk not only about their brand purpose or why, but also how where they play, who they employ, and how they work has driven their incredible success. In this episode, we talk to James Oakmaster, who has spent the last 13 years playing a key role in the growth story of three very well-known insurgent food brands, Goo Chocolate Puds, Ella's Kitchen, and Huel. James was my very first hire at Goo Chocolate Puds in 2006. He was only 23 at the time, and even then it was very obvious that he was the kind of person who was going to go far. With only two years as a junior consultant at LEK Consulting under his belt, he joined Goo in business development and quickly rose through the ranks to become Goo's first ever operations director. His commercial acumen, gorgeous personality and enormous dedication were absolutely key to our international expansion, particularly as we moved from a regional to a national model in France within the first year. James left Goo after a few years as Global Operations and Supply Chain Director and spent some five years at Ella's Kitchen as Co-Managing Director before becoming CEO of super insurgent brand Huel. Here's our interview earlier this week on his experience of the transformational growth at Goo, Ella's and Huel and the key drivers of this growth. James, welcome to Brand Growth Heroes and thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I'm very excited, Fiona. Thanks for making me one of your first guests. You're so welcome. I'm really excited to catch up. So it's been about 12 years since you and I started working closely together at Goo Chocolate Puds when we set up the Goo France business and then evolved it from a small little regional startup to a national business with listings in all the major French grocery customers. You played a really key role in the growth story in many countries And since then, you've been incredibly busy driving growth for two other well-known insurgent food brands that have also transformed their categories. Tell us a little bit about what you've been doing and about the spectacular growth of these brands. Yeah, if I think back to Goo, I was very lucky from a timing point of view because I came out of consulting knowing very little about food and drink. And I joined Goo at the perfect time where we were growing quickly and I had the chance to work across sales and marketing and operations and customer care and quality, like mental number of functions. And if I joined a bit later, I would have probably had a a less broad experience. So that was wonderful for me. And then we grew to about 25 million pounds of sales uh, and the business sold. And then I went straight to Ella's Kitchen Baby Food, which at the time was turning over about 8 million pounds. And we had about 20 odd people. It was predominantly a UK business. And we grew it into, uh, into Europe and into the US. And over a five-year period, we, uh, we grew to about $100 million of revenue and sold to a US company that's a natural and organic uh, food brand. And then uh, most recently, I've been at Huel and uh, joined at a similar time, actually. So we, we were about 20 people and we were turning over about £12 million a year. And it's just been phenomenal growth. I thought Goo and Ella's Kitchen were fast, but Huel's another level. And this year will be about um, 70 million in turnover. And we have about come up towards 100 people. So it's been a lot of fun so far. My goodness. I mean, these are incredible growth figures that you're you're telling us about here across all three of the brands. I had no idea, actually, that Ella's Kitchen had got to 100 million in revenue before you moved on to Huel. That's amazing. So all three, really, of the brands you work for have driven this massive transformational growth for their own businesses. I bet they've also transformed the categories in which they were playing. 
Yeah, I think they're, they're all classic challenger brands. So um, if we kind of work through them, so before Goo was there, if you wanted a decent dessert, you went to a patisserie. And what Goo did is it, it a beautiful, sexy, decadent luxury brand to the supermarket. And that just didn't happen before and totally rewrote the rules for that. I think Ella's Kitchen in a similar way before it came along, most baby food was a glass jar with goopy brown liquid with a picture of a baby on the front. And you know how many kids are inspired by that? And what um, Paul Linney, the founder, did is he came from a, a, a background of TV and he understood children's TV at Nickelodeon. And he said, I think children eat with all their senses. So suddenly Ella's Kitchen turned up with pouches which were crinkly and made noise and children could hold them and they're brightly colored and they were organic and it allowed the whole category to completely change. And now you don't really see glass charge in the same way and it's all just completely changed the dynamics there. And then um, at Huel, uh, interesting in that traditional food is is knife and fork and, and something you sort of think about and go and choose ingredients and chop and cook and heat and and, and eat there. And, and what Huel does is provide nutritionally complete, convenient, affordable food. And that we generally sell um, a powder is one of our larger products where you, you mix it with water and shake it up and that's your meal. So it totally rewrites the rule book about how you should be consuming your calories in a day. And I think the world is moving forward to a place where people want vegan sustainable food where they're minimizing their impact on the world and all for a cost of one pound 40. It's funny isn't it because when I was growing up I remember my mum using Slimfast and the only kind of reference point I have in my life up until I came across Huel was um, you know powder that you would mix up and it was it was very much for somebody who wanted to lose weight and it kind of had negative connotations associated whereas this is you know it's powder that you mix right and it's nutritionally complete but it's something that people uh, who are very nutritionally savvy will go out and choose to take to keep their body healthy. Is that really the way it is? Well, it's a very uh, transparent brand. So we put on the back of pack every single nutritional value and all, all 26 vitamins and minerals. And also the ingredients are very modern and plant-based. So they're um, rice and pea and flaxseed and sunflower and oats. And they're all things we go, wow, they're, they're super healthy for you. So it's just in a new format. I think we often get associated with more from a powder point of view with uh, with protein shakes. Oh, of course, yeah. Um, and and obviously that's a, a link there. We've just launched a ready-to-drink bottle version of Huel, which you could argue breaks down some of those barriers a bit in terms of people thinking, hang on, I need to take this powder, mix it with some water and shake it up. And it, it's um, a very modern way of doing things, whereas actually the bottle we've done, you literally unscrew it and drink it. And, it, and we think it will open us up to a slightly wider audience. I suppose the point I was trying to make was that, you know, I think you said that this year you're going to hit maybe $70 million in sales with Huel. And if you can do that, even with, you know, the, the reference points being, well, you know, for, for me, it was slim fast, but for other people, it might be protein shakes, but it's not necessarily everyday food. If you can hit $70 million in revenue when you've still got reference points that are not about everyday food, my God, what can you do when the reference points shifts and this does become for most people kind of de rigueur that once or twice or three times a week or every day you would replace one of your meals with this. I mean, it just, the market opportunity uh, seems unlimited when you look at it that way. Massively, um, pounds actually on the on the 70 million number, but it's really hard to forecast what business might be. But we, we look at things like, if you look at the soft drinks categories, if you take sort of fizzy um, energy drinks, I think the global category is something like 70 
billion dollars for something that's basically sugary water with a bit of caffeine that's bad for you. And we we see Huel as essentially just food, and often people have it as their breakfast or their lunch. So the market is really hard to define. It's probably hundreds of billions of dollars of what it might be worth. So yeah, the the kind of the potential is pretty extraordinary. Okay, so really, really massive growth numbers. And tell me, so you spoke about Goo, what was there before Goo and what was there before Ella's. And we've talked about kind of the way people ate before Huel. Well, they just, well, what did they do? These people who were eating Huel now or consuming Huel now, what did they do before Huel was around? Uh, well, often they see it as a new way of changing something about their diet and their lifestyle. So there's various things going on in the world. So food waste is a massive issue where, 30% of everything we, we make, we throw away. Obesity is clearly a huge um, epidemic that's going on. And then we've got an issue of growing population size where the world is going to grow from about 7 billion people now to about um, 10 billion people in 2050. So how do you solve all those things? I think daily different triggers make people think of fuel as a reason to, to change something about their lifestyle. So if you break them down, we have an affordability metric. So for £1.30, £1.40 per meal, you, you can have a meal. So we're quite popular with um, with students at universities. From a nutrition point of view, that hits the obesity parts where people want to be um, more nutritious. They want to uh, care more about their, their hair, their skin, their nails, their weights. And then I think quite a big angle that's driving things more recently is reducing meat consumption. Even in parts of the world like the US, um, I think it's like 25% of people are consuming less meat now than they were a year ago. And that's in the US where, you know, they fry their turkeys in barrels of oil um, barbecue. So all those things come together. But if we ask our customers, the two key things why they buy Huel are health and convenience. So the world's just becoming a busier place. And if you can get, for the moment, most fast food is bad for you. But Huel is effectively good fast food that you can just grab and know you're being super healthy and it's got all the protein, all the carbohydrates, all the fats, all the fiber and all 26 vitamins and minerals. Then it's an easy, um, easy solution for people. And just for our listeners who maybe aren't as aware of Huel or this category as you or I. So the people who are, who are drinking Huel or eating Huel, they're not doing it. They're not replacing every single meal. I mean, your average consumer of Huel, your average loyal consumer is not replacing every single meal, are they? Because I know that when I came across this brand or, or maybe one of the competitors, I thought, oh God, what's happening to the world? You know, what about chewing and, and what about enjoying a, a lovely meal out? But that's not what this is about, is it? Yeah, we definitely get some sort of naysayers who see it as replacing all of their food and how dare we do that. And actually what we're about really is about your most inconvenient meal. So okay. um, often for people that's breakfast and lunch, we do have some uh, some customers or Hewlers as we and they call um, Huel customers. Some people do just have Huel as all of their diets. Uh, the majority of people have it for probably one to two meals a day. And often that's in the working week. So if you take me as an example, I will have fuel breakfast and lunch Monday to Friday and I'll very rarely have it in the evening or weekends. And it's usually if I'm on my own and I just can't be bothered to do anything that we, uh, on an evening and I, I might just have a, a Huel shake for, for dinner, but that's quite rare. So I think I'm, I'm more of a typical customer in that. So you would have a Huel shake for breakfast and lunch five days a week? Yeah. Wow. And if you think about it, right, that's, that's 10 meals and the average person's having 20, 25 meals a week you're becoming half vegan without really trying. And, right. and all of those meals, when you're consuming Huel, 
your nutrition levels are insane. So it's a very easy way of suddenly eating better for you and eating better for the world. So tell me this, if Huel wasn't available, you wouldn't be eating like that, would you? Uh, no. No. Okay. So this brings us back to this transformational element of these insurgent brands that I'm trying to explore throughout this podcast series. And one of the things that just fascinates me is that by bringing something that used to be maybe a niche to the mass market and giving access to the mass market to something that they really that really wasn't very accessible to them in the past, all of a sudden, uh, not only do you drive tremendous growth for the company, but you also drive huge change in consumer behavior. And I think Huel is an amazing example of that. I mean, Goo was, you know, on a, on a much smaller scale, you know, people didn't spend three ninety nine on on two desserts to have on a Friday night with their husband. They bought up, you know, some chocolate or a, a packet of mini bars, but they didn't do anything posh, you know, <laughs> in a very commas. I, I remember like people used when it, when we first started, it was sort of uh, a little bit more of a secret where people would not make their own desserts yeah. and they would put goo on the table. And then I remember, you know, a few years later, suddenly it was a cool thing to do to tell everyone that you were serving goo and that made it even more special. Do you remember in France, actually, when we were launching in France, we used to use that. Um, there was an ad in the 80s in France about, I think it was um, the equivalent kind of, it was a Sara Lee type brand in France, very much kind of a mum's household brand. And she brought this, uh, I don't know what it was, a pie or something to the table. And she says in French, c'est moi qui l'a fait, which means um, I made it. But of course she didn't because it was uh, from a packet. And we used to use this expression in France when we were selling to the Carrefour and the Ocean buyers to explain the consumer insight behind the whole idea. And there was a real cultural click, you know, because there was already a hook there in their heads for what Goo stood for in terms of how it was going to be used and what it would mean to their shoppers. That was really, really useful. So we've we've talked a little bit then about the fact that these brands, you know, have driven massive growth and they've quite transformational. Are there any similarities in the brands that you've worked with in these three brands in terms of the types of people maybe that they employ or the types of the way they approach problems? Are they different than brands that are maybe either less successful or bigger? Because one of one of the key things of interest, I think, at the moment is how do bigger companies who maybe have more incumbent brands learn from these insurgent brands? And I think you guys do work quite differently, don't you? Whether it's people or process. Yeah, it's just all about the kind of the brand side of things first. So I think, interestingly, if you, looking back at Goo, it was all about just luxury desserts and purely about product. And no one had done glass ramekins in a supermarket at a premium price point that you'd feel proud to show to people at a dinner party. And if you think back, that was sort of, I'm guessing about 15 years or so ago. I think now, maybe the last sort of couple of years, there's no point starting a brand unless it's got some kind of positive purpose and benefit to society. So I think you, know, you didn't really have that, but it did have beauty and this kind of sexy Aesthetics, packaging and, yeah. and, and great products. So I think Ella's Kitchen started as a purpose about improving children's lives through healthy relationships with food and it does good in the world. And I think Huel in a similar way is all about creating nutritionally complete food that's affordable, convenient and minimal impact on animals and the environment. And I think all the more successful brands in the last kind of I think, five years or so, they've all got some kind of purpose-led positive benefit. And I think that's the trend you're seeing. I think brands like Goo in the future just won't exist unless they've also got something else that people are proud to be associated with. And so what about what about the people um, who work for these brands? So the people that you've worked with 
and the people you've ended up employing as you've gone up the ranks in these companies. What are you looking for? And is, are there similarities in, in the types of people that these companies want to hire? I've always thought that mindset beats skill set. And especially at, at, at Goo and Ella's Kitchen, the types of people we employed had the right attitude. They believed in our mission and what we're doing. And they, they could learn on the job if they were hardworking and smart enough. And we had ex- exactly the same at, at Huel. I think the only difference perhaps at Huel is because it's quite rocket ship level growth, we've had to bring on some people um, across the business who've got a little bit more experience rather than rely on everyone sort of evolving into those roles. And it's a personal like failing perhaps in my mind of trying to always promote within and, and and allow people to keep growing the fact that we had to bring in a few people outside who've got super levels of experience sort of slightly goes against my mindset but um how do you balance that up James because I'm imagining that when you bring people in from outside and they haven't been some of the original hewlers you know you know, and it's funny, just on an aside, I was talking to Tony's Chuckle Only last week on the phone and the girl I was talking to, a really lovely girl who's in charge of all sorts of special projects, she was saying that she's one of the original Tony's crew. And I remember, you know, you and I were one of the original Goo crews. And, and there's always like a second lot of people that come on at a, a later stage to support the growth. How do you make sure that, I mean, how do you personally make sure a CEO or co-managing director of these companies, as you were for Ellis, that these people can absorb and assimilate the culture and then reproject it out to their teams? And is there a risk associated with bringing people in from who have experience, they're probably from different bigger companies, different cultures? How do you balance that risk? It's a much higher risk bringing people with more experience. I think when you are earlier in your career, you're generally a bit more malleable. And actually, we do things a bit differently at Huel. And some of the best people we have here are those that are joined early on and they've almost got Huel in their veins. So there's a group of a handful of people. We've got Tim, Zoe and Gulliver, who in the first couple of employees, and they sort of often go to them to ask questions and their instincts often a bit like Julian, our founder, and James, our co-founder, they just know what the right thing to do is. We actually even codified that further recently we created a group called early hooligans which is the top 10 longest serving people in the business and i use them for as a sounding board so we just launched our first culture book um, which is a 75 page long story um, of everything we believe in and things like our our dna and and how to be a hooligan and, and some of the kind of more traditional hre stuff in there and we'd send it to them in advance they'd they'd sort of pick holes in it and and tap me on the back for some good stuff in there and and got to use them as a sounding board. I think the other thing we do is on the interview process, we're quite bold in saying that we pick on two people um, to be sort of cultural guardians per per role in the process. So if you are interviewing here, two people will will meet you, just you know, no connection to the role. And they've got the ability to say no from a pure fit point of view. So I remember we were looking for uh, an executive assistant and uh, we found someone I thought they were really good. And then two of our team met, met them and said, no, I'm sorry, they don't, they don't fit in here. And I said, great, we won't find them. And then, you know, a few months later, we found a lady called Leah and, and she turned out to be much better than them anyway. So I think it's people like that, that responsibility that they have and they take it really seriously. Um, I think also on the onboarding front, we spend a huge amount of time on whether you've come from a 
whether you're early in your career and actually you're probably more malleable or you have come from somewhere with much more experience and you sort of feel like that's what you've been trained to do elsewhere well we spend a huge amount of time on onboarding say this is how we do things here i think we've still got loads to do in that area of making sure people do the the whole way of things and that's why we decided to codify stuff in our culture book i always imagined that with a company an insurgent brand with huge transformational growth that it would all be about the marketing and the product and the brand purpose i i am really surprised to see just how serious companies like Huel and as i said i spoke to tony's last week informally and how seriously they are taking culture and codifying the culture and sharing the culture across the team because they know and you know that as the team grows this is one of the key pieces of magic almost yeah i think especially when you're growing the number of team that quickly the biggest danger is if you join in your first day and you happen to sit next to someone and they ask you oh, how do we do this this and this they're just giving you their personal opinion and if that happens every week i mean we we bring on a new member of staff every week and suddenly you end up with people just all doing things differently and then it all breaks down and then you can't achieve all your all your dreams i think if you've got a solid purpose of why you're here you've got a great design direction and you've got a great product actually the the harder thing for them is is scaling it with people and if you get the onboarding wrong if you get the interviewing wrong then it all all goes all goes to pot okay so it's almost like the second phase isn't it you know you spend as a founder in a startup you spend an awful lot of time on the product at the beginning and then on the product marketing and the selling and then well even if this is the third phase it's like right we've got to get people right because as we start to expand across the globe these are the people who are going to carry the product which we are now very confident with and the proposition that we're very confident with these are the guys they're going to deliver it i think the other the other overlay for that for us is that if we were just a uk business selling in the uk with one team in one office actually you can still get by with people sort of hearing stuff and seeing things all in one office and you don't need to spend as much time on communication but we've gone for a, you know we talk about thinking differently we we we've gone for an approach of we now have six offices spread across three countries that means it's even harder to keep everyone aligned so we spend even more time on communication and onboarding and interviewing so for instance we do an all hands meeting every two weeks we call it all hooligans and people who work at huel are, are hooligans and um yeah we do one hour video call every two weeks and that takes a lot of prep and it but what it does me do is it means everyone knows what's going on they know what's just happened what's about to happen and people taking turns from different areas of, of saying what, what's going on their world and it keeps us all together so that's a, a huge thing to do but i was quite inspired by lots of us tech firms and that's that's a lot of what they do so yeah we 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 did it monthly now i do it every two weeks it just felt like the right cadence for us it sounds like, it's funny you should say that because one of the things I was talking about at my talk in Cantor last week in Paris was that when I've been talking to insurgent food brands about their people and their culture and their and their ways of working, it sounds way more like working for a Facebook or a Google or all these kind of, you know, urban myths we hear about what it's like to work for those tech startups that are now monoliths than it does working for, you know, a Nestle or a Goo back in the days when I was still in business rather than working for business. Uh, is that the way it feels for you? We, we had a conversation a while back, actually, I think when I was joining Huel about what are we as a business? And we talked about this thing called the Huel Triangle, which is basically, on the one hand, we're a retailer. So we we are a shop on online with direct consumer, but we take orders every 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 minute and people want deliveries and we need to provide them the right service. 
And then the other side of the triangle is we're a tech firm. So we have a lot of work going on to develop our site and how we do subscription and, and how we organize our, our customer experience around the world in receiving um, contacts and manage them. And then on the third part of the triangle, we're a classic CPG or FMCG, fast moving consuming goods company, where we are a brand who creates food and drink products and sells them. So we're, we're quite unique in that. And therefore, when we think about how to set ourselves up, there's definitely bits we borrow from the tech world, like all hands meetings, and we're very modern in how we communicate. We use Slack and, and we um, lots of video calls all the time. And at the same time, there's sometimes you might think, oh, we're a classic FMCG firm because we're talking about manufacturing sometimes. And then it's about um, sprints and, and some of the things that happen on the kind of tech and retail world. So we're this really strange mix, but it sort of works well. And it's about doing what's, what's right for us. So one of the things that I was giggling to myself about when I was preparing for this talk for Cantor last week in Paris was all the funny stories about how we did things differently at Goo and how I was kind of sharing with the audience that the, the decisions we made at Goo and the way we went about doing things just never would have happened at, say, Nestle or any of the other big companies I worked with. And the kind of things might be, uh, for an example, you know, persuading our biggest competitor in the marketplace in France to take our desserts and deliver them to every supermarket in the whole of France, which, you know, if you're a competitor and that might seem like a really strange thing to agree to, but somehow James Averdeek, our founder, got them to agree to that, which meant that we overcame a hurdle, which was that we weren't actually able to afford to deliver nationally, you know, and, and there was all sorts of other examples, for example, you know, uh, formalizing our stock giveaways by doing office drops on a Friday and and setting up our do you want to be the most famous person in the office page in yeah and you know all the great photos we got back from the stock market in Paris the day that the stock market dived in 2008 and they all sent pictures of their screens with all of the red lines you know the market's crashing but they had goo so they were happy big smiley <laughs> faces you know, it was really, it was really, it was a different way of doing things. And it was probably a different way of doing things because we didn't have huge resources. But also because James taught us to think quite differently, to really think outside the box. Uh, and I was just wondering, you know, I'm sure that you've got plenty of examples from Ellis and from Huel in terms of how you get around challenges or how you have got around challenges in a way that you don't necessarily think other companies might have done it. And, and purely the reason you know, I'm trying to elicit this out of, of, of the conversation is to share with maybe other startups or bigger brands, you know, how you can actually think differently, what, what we can learn from that. I mean, it's funny, like one of the values we had at Ella's Kitchen was I think differently. And one oh, really? that we have at Huel is that we say we do things a little different. So it's, it's definitely a common theme across. Um, That's amazing. I, I had no idea. So in both companies, they were part of the core values. Yeah, exactly. Wow. And, and I think of some of the things we've done now are quite drastic. So even just the way Huel was set up. So most people now, if you think about creating a food and drink business, the obvious next step is go and speak to shops and think about your product being on the shelf. And actually, Huel is 100% direct consumer. So every single sale we make is where people are going onto our website, transacting, receiving a box that we've packed from our warehouses around the world and shipped to them. And we're one of the fastest growing companies based in the UK doing that. So it's a completely different mindset. And that's one way of thinking about it. The other thing I think we've done quite differently, again, in the last sort of year or so is We've said to fulfill our potential and be be the world's leading complete food brand, 
we need to have the best team. And we talked about it a bit earlier about you know all the different success factors, and that's a key part of our success in the next few years. Will be how good are we at building our team around the world and making everything gel. So. Uh, we're based out in Hertfordshire in the UK, and we took the decision that finding the best team meant that we wouldn't always have everyone within a commutable distance of our headquarters in Hertfordshire. So we decided to build different offices around the world. So in the UK, we actually got three offices. So we've got the head office, and then our guy who ran runs um, engineering, Chris, uh, he's from Birmingham, and we were struggling to get a team based in Hertfordshire. So we said, okay, you go and set up an office in Birmingham and we'll, and we'll find the team and base them around you there. And we've now got eight people in Birmingham for our engineering team, making sure our, our website experience around the world is, is, is amazing. And then uh, for performance marketing, so how you know we, we spend a lot of money on using social platforms to communicate Huel um, messaging. And again, we found a great guy, Josh, and he lived in East London. It's hard to come out to Hertfordshire. So again, we built an office in London We've got four people there and we're building. Uh, and then when we think about how to run the best customer experience when, when you're so international, so we sell to 80 countries around the world, we've got sort of 10 core markets that we look at. But finding language abilities here is, is quite complicated. So we've got uh, an office in Berlin where there's about 10 people and we can speak 10 different languages, so French and Swedish and Italian and Spanish and German. And that was the right thing. So yeah, we've, we've gone a bit wild. I'm not sure there are many companies around the world with six offices when they're three years old and, and they're turning over our levels. So one final question, James. One of the things that also striking me at the moment on this uh, adventure, <laughs> exploratory adventure into understanding insurgent brands is that there's often a really strong number two or second level kind of line of first command underneath a founder in many of these insurgent brands, certainly in the food industry. And it strikes me that you've played a, that role in three companies now. You know, you played it in Goo from very early on. You were part of that first line of command and rose to, I'd say, you know, the top end of that first line of command in Goo. And then you were at the top of that first line of command in Ella's. And now you are again in, in Huel. What makes you that person? What makes you the person who leads that first line of command under a founder versus being a founder? Yeah, I wish I had the idea to be the founder myself. I've never had a good enough idea. Um, and I think it's really hard because like, most people have ideas, but the reality is someone's probably done it before already and better or they're executing it in a, in a different way. So I'm quite thoughtful in knowing that it's actually a really hard thing to do. So, Or is it that you're very good at executing and actually a lot of these founders potentially have got the big ideas, but they're big ideas people and they need someone like you to execute it with excellence i think i think you know when it when something grows really quickly the reality is you might see from the business on the outside there's either one or two or three figureheads and they probably do more of the, the kind of press and reality is when things are growing so quickly there's actually a fairly decent number of people that make it all tick and make it happen it's about the right thing so for instance at ella's kitchen we had you know we did things a bit differently there as we said so rather than calling it the senior management team we had a group called the little huddle there was about five people who, who led all the functions. And then we had another group called Big Huddle that was about, I think, 10 to 15 people where the next layer, for want of a better word, um, also got involved in various conversations, various decisions in it. And we haven't quite got there yet in Huel and what that all means, but I'm a big believer in, in that. And you know, we, we've had a, a strategy session recently where we had probably about 12 people all got involved. And that's probably our equivalent of 
a big huddle, but we haven't formalized that. Sure. So I think there's um, there's something into that. Um, in terms of working with founders, so yeah, I've definitely become that person who sort of works with the founder. And also Polly, my wife, she founded a brand called The Fold and she had a co-founder at the time and who who um, moved country. So she's been running it on her own the last five years. But I sort of play a little bit of that role for her as well as a as a support to her. So it's a fashion brand, I think, is it? It's yes, it's um, the Fold London, and it's uh, it's they they're there to dress and inspire the modern professional women's. So they sell um, dresses and shirts and and suits for for women in a in a more um, formal working environment. They do some casual stuff too now. So it's going really well. And that's direct consumer too. So Crazy. a lot of learnings I had from the fold have helped me with Huel because I more traditionally had more of a, a kind of retail, kind of FMCG background rather than um, e-commerce retail. But you know, luckily all the work I've done with Polly over the years has helped me for, for Huel. But um, I think people, like, I, I, hard for me to say about myself other than what people have said to me, but some of the founders I've, I've worked with have said I'm, very collaborative and um, give them the space they need. So I, I think if you if you start a business, it's a bit like your baby and you, you know the DNA and it's sort of your, your instinct is generally right. So Julian at Huel, you know, he's almost always right. I'll say almost to make sure he kind of keep his feet on the ground. But, <laughs> you, you know, when you have certain decisions, you just sort of know he's got that instinct about the brand. And, and I think some people try and work with founders and just sort of put their own stamp on things in their own way. And I clearly do that, but often you've got to find that way of when to give people space to, to do their thing. And, and often you get better outcomes. Well, I think that's very humble of you. And it's obvious to me that you and your teams must have been doing a lot of things right over the years. So we've covered a load of really interesting points here today about how the brands you've worked for have allowed consumers in the mass market to fundamentally change their behavior, how people and culture are key drivers of success and how thinking differently and doing it differently has been a common value across all of the insurgent brands you've worked for. James, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm really delighted to have been able to catch up on everything you've been doing and I'm looking forward to following your progress and that of Fuels over the coming years. Oh, thank you, Fiona. I've absolutely loved it. So I hope it's uh, an interesting segment for everyone. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Bye.